Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we are talking about a topic that seems to be highly debated in field service, which is the role of the hybrid labor model. I speak with people that are on very different ends of the spectrum. I tend to find people either are very excited about the concept of it and embracing it, or people that are very, very cautious and hesitant of uh, the hybrid labor model. So today I'm going to be joined by Charles Hughes, who is the Vice President of Technical Site Services at Acuitive, uh, who himself has a lot of experience um, mastering and managing the hybrid labor model. So he is going to give us the lowdown on what its benefits and challenges are, um, what a company needs to consider if you're looking to adopt this sort of model, among other things. So Charles, thank you so much for being with us today. Can you please take a couple minutes and tell us about yourself? Thank you, Sarah. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, as you indicated, I'm currently the Vice President of Technical Services for Cuative, but my entire career since I got out of the military has been focused on field service organizations. I've worked on the long haul carrier side of things. I've worked on the professional services piece. I've also worked as the in-house field service provider for Fortune 500 companies. So I have the full spectrum of field service work. And one of the things that's that's unusual is I choose to do this. Sometimes people think you're forced into field services because it's a very interesting and diverse uh, lifestyle, but it's something I really enjoy doing. And when I when I go out there, meeting with my technicians, meeting with the team, but then also helping drive the corporate strategy, and that's always been my focus: change management, drive the strategy, and help our technicians service our customers in the best way possible. Great, wonderful. Okay, so um, so you yourself are in your current role managing a hybrid labor model, so. Tell us a bit about what you see as the primary benefits of leveraging this model. There's very many facets to the labor model and how you could leverage it in your organization. But if you take it down to the most basic components, it gives you flexibility, it gives you scalability, and it gives you the ability to control the cost and still deliver high quality levels of service. And those are different parameters that companies struggle with And depending on which sector you're in, the the dynamics for a long-haul carrier group versus a retail group are extremely different. But being able to maneuver quickly with a large organization and not be a bottleneck when big projects come up, but then also not be too heavy on the bottom line of the company is a big benefit of this. I can take my labor model, customize it to what I need today, and still be prepared for what's coming tomorrow. So between that flexibility, scalability, and cost, those are the, the primary benefits of the hybrid model. Okay, good. So on the flip side of that, um, you know, I think there's always two sides to every coin, right? So, so what are some of the challenges that companies need to be prepared for when they take on a hybrid labor model? You know, that's, that's a good question. And it's different depending on the company you're working on, working at, and what their focus is. But one of the biggest mistakes or problems I've seen people have when they try to incorporate a hybrid labor model is understanding how much back-end support it's going to take. The model is very efficient and very effective, but it does take a lot of hard work to get it set up and get it established. And I've seen people that underestimate the preparation it takes 
to get the model in place and to get it working. And if you don't put the right support pieces in place, you're going to find your results aren't what are expected. And it's going to be hard to overcome the skepticism, which is probably the second obstacle you have to take a look at that other people have on whether or not it's going to work. I can remember as recently as five, six years ago, if you're in front of a customer, they always ask, so how are you going to deploy this project? And what they want to hear you say is, I have 5 million W-2 technicians out there, and everyone that touches your work will be a W-2 technician. And if you use the word contractor or vendor partner, they would immediately try to shut you down. Well, over the years, our customers have gotten used to the fact that you, know, you do have contractors in the mix. We do have other people besides just our W-2s, but they're still skeptical on the quality they're going to get. So you have to be ready to be transparent with your customer and be able to answer the questions and help them understand why they don't care that you're using a hybrid labor model, except for the benefits that they're going to get. And then in one particular case with the company I was at, overcoming internal corporate governance can be an issue. The hybrid labor model puts a lot more control at the frontline level of the organization. And if you have a highly structured, administratively driven corporate governance model, you have to make sure they understand how it's going to work in implementation so it can be effective and efficient for you. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think, you know, when I said at the beginning, the people I've talked to about this topic are tend to be on one extreme or the other, right? They're either very for it or they're very against it. And I think that you just touched on the root of where those folks that tend to be against it are coming from, which is relinquishing that control. Um, so, you know, that's, that's certainly something we can dive into uh, a bit more. Um, but, uh, but before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you currently leverage labor clouds in, in your role at Acuitive? Well, it's, there's several different ways that I use the hybrid labor model. We do have a foundational maintenance base, customers that are, that are providing us uh, or looking to us to provide them break-fix maintenance, uh, annuity-based support. And when we're requested dispatch, we have to be there within the two, four, eight-hour SLAs, however it's built into the contract. We also balance off our workload with a lot of ad hoc project work. Now, that can cause a conflict if you have a very tight market and you schedule a technician for a project, and then a critical maintenance ticket comes in, you're now caught between a dilemma possibly of having to choose, do I disappoint my annuity-based maintenance customer or do I endanger the schedule for my project? One of the things we do in those heavy markets like that, I will use more of my hybrid labor model for the project work, reserving my W-2 capacity based on the, the known influx of maintenance work, so now I don't create those conflicts. I take my W-2s then and layer them over the contractors and partner vendors that we use to provide oversight, do quality audits, but they're doing roles that if I need to pull them for maintenance, I can still meet my SLA and still keep the project going forward. And that's one of our primary focuses. The second area that we look at is we have some untapped markets. The sales teams out there, they find a customer that's not in a spot that we're heavily populated with technicians. So it's the, the scale's not there to go out and hire the team to support that market, I can still do the work and bring the customer on board, use my hybrid model until we grow that critical mass, then start putting my W-2s in place. So being able to, to get into those markets at a lower cost point and lowest entry level is a big opportunity for us. 
So how have you in your career and your experience with this kind of learned the ins and outs of doing that? Like where to apl- where to best apply which category of employee? It, it's interesting that you ask that because it started about six or seven years ago. I was actually at a industry conference and I was listening to a gentleman talk about contingent labor. And I came from the old school of my employees are the best at everything that needs to be done. I can trust my people. I want my employees in front of my customers. But as I listened to them, I started thinking more. And I realized first thing I need to do was be willing to forget everything I've learned in my career, erase the board, start from a whiteboard, take some of these new concepts, these new ideas, and put them into play and see how they work. So that was a... uh, it was a, it was almost a rejuvenating time for my career because I kind of started field service all over again. And what we looked at was what were the big factors that the team we had were complaining about? We had technicians that had been with us 12, 14, 15 years, and they knew our systems inside and out. And they really enjoyed being on the highly complex, the, the difficult issues that really took some creativity and innovation to, to fix. But they also had these very routine, go clear a paper jam, go change a toner cartridge activities that had to be done that they just didn't really enjoy doing. So I started by taking the lower complexity tasks and using my hybrid labor model to support those. It was very low risk. It was very high um, opportunity for success. And then understanding where those lines change, how far can I go with one, how far can I go with the other? And then the second area is staff aug. If I need three techs on a job, I can send one of my 10-year W-2 techs, then a couple of techs from the labor model, the hybrid labor model to support, and that helps lower the cost, and it also helps me build confidence in the uh, 1099s that I'm using as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. You know, I think it's really interesting what you said about sort of that light bulb moment for you and how you started doing field service differently. I mean... I think there's probably a lot of folks that by choice or by force are with you in that. Um, But man, if there's anyone listening that hasn't yet had their own light bulb moment, you know, there needs to be a way to force that to happen because, you know, the, the idea of doing business the way it's always been done, because that's how it's always been done is just a recipe for, um, disaster, you know? So, um, that, that's really cool how that happened to you. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's something that, that people need to be a little bit more open-minded about, you know, some of the, the different ways of doing business, um, that exist. So, um, so I think, you know, going back to, for companies that aren't leveraging a hybrid labor model, I think one of the concerns, and there's a few probably big ones, um, but one of the concerns is, um, the negative impact for the W-2 employees, you know, so sort of the idea of, you know, we're bringing on these, um, these 1099 employees to replace all of our W-2 employees. When in reality, I know you've talked a bit about how you can, you can really be more strategic about using a hybrid labor model to enhance the career paths of your W-2 employees. So can you talk about some of the ways that you can, um, that you can do that? where it can actually be a positive for those W-2 employees? It, absolutely. And, and my first endeavor with this was at Walgreens in, in a previous uh, role. And that's exactly how the technicians were taking it. At that organization, I had technicians that had been with us for 20 years. I had one gentleman in Florida, I, I, I remember clearly meeting with him. And he said, you know, when I started here 34 years ago, 
they were trying to outsource us. And I know you're still trying to do that. And I, I just can't stand living under that umbrella. And, and I looked at him and I said, so for the past 34 years at this job, you've been worried we're going to outsource you. And he kind of looked at me and said, well, when you say it that way, it does sound kind of silly, doesn't it? I said, it does. Your team needs to understand the value of their, their, their contribution to the organization. I, I don't advocate a 100% 1099 model. So your employees need to understand what it is you're trying to do. So my first step was, as we started exploring this, we didn't sit back in the corporate offices and come up with this plan and everybody sitting at the whiteboard, here's how we're gonna do it. I engaged my field technicians, my frontline managers and my direct managers, and we worked as a team on what this means, how it works and what, it, what we could do with it. That way there was transparency up front. They understood that we were trying to find a way to deliver better service to our customer, help control our costs, which benefits everybody, which provides job security. And we also had a plan that as we created more bandwidth, it wasn't designed to reduce the W-2 headcount. It was designed to allow us to do more work to support the customer. So as we started bringing the, w the W-2s into the mix for the project, and as we started assigning contractors, we had them work side by side with our most senior technicians. And the senior technicians evaluated the work, made sure it was done properly, and then they provided us feedback. They said, hey, this contractor you brought in, Charles, he did a really great job. These are his strengths. We'd like to use them on other kind of activities. Or they might say, hey, this guy worked hard, but he doesn't really quite have the skill set. So they provided the evaluations on who we should and shouldn't use. And we made sure they understood that the more the, the 1099s we brought in for this work, the more we needed their leadership. So now we were not only valuing their technical skills, we we're valuing their ability to oversee other people's work, to provide quality control for it. And instead of one of my techs over a week going to 12 different sites to do the same job, he would have teams doing those 12 sites and he would be the first point of escalation. He would be the person that would go check to make sure it was done right to the quality audits. He would deal with those customer questions or concerns, and it elevated his position in the organization. And they really, really thrived upon that. And that's when they started to embrace the model and realize this gives them some more opportunities as opposed to something that's going to endanger their uh, current career. That's such a powerful point. Um you know, if you think about this just as a major change, like the introduction of a major change, right? So whether that's starting to incorporate 1099 employees or whether that's the introduction of a new technology or whether that's a shift in business model or, or whatever that, that monumental change is, I think the point you just made of, you know, the, the impact open communication can have on the outcome of that change is super powerful because, you know, if, if this was something that was done in a more closed off way, it just feeds that fear. It feeds that uncertainty. If you bring it out in the open and you, you know, make people feel involved in it, you know, the, the outcome can be drastically different. So I think that's, that's such a valuable point. Um, Okay. So, so when we spoke previously, Charles, one of the things you said, and you were adamant about this is that the hybrid labor, labor model is a fit for any organization. 
So I know though, that there are organizations out there that would disagree with that. And and that might be because they're sort of holding on to that control or they're concerned about, you know, how, um, 1099 employees might impact their customer experience, or they're worried about the impression that their W-2 employees would have, or, or any of those major concerns. So you stand by that point, but for those listening that might not agree with that, explain what you mean when you say that it is a fit for any organization and, and tell us how that is. And that particular comment is one of my favorite ones to put out if I'm in a, in a group session, if we're at a conference, because it really raises eyebrows and people look because at you like to start fight. <laughs> well, I'd like to get their attention and yeah. boy, does that get their attention? And, and then I explained to them, I said, the reason I say that, and I, I do contend it's true. People approach this as a binary option. I'm either all in or I'm all out. And if, if that's the approach you take, you're right. It probably will not work for your organization. But if you take a look at it, that, there's certain functions and tasks within your organization that this might apply to, then you could find some use for it. I'll give you a really good example. I had a gentleman, I made the comment that every organization can use this. And he proceeded to tell me about his line of business and they installed industrial ovens. And I'm not talking about the pizza oven in your local restaurant. I'm talking about the one size of small office buildings that if they're not installed properly and something bad happened, it could take out blocks in a neighborhood. So needless to say, highly trained, highly regulated, very specialized skill set takes a very long time to be able to do that work. And he says, how would I use a 1099? I said, give me the profile of a typical job. He's talking about three of his technicians very expensive technicians, very tenured, very good technicians, they go to a job and they're going to install this oven. So what do they do for the first two days? Well, they're unpacking and doing inventory. How technical is that? And they said, what do you mean? They have a, a bomb list. They check the serial numbers against the box. They do the count the widgets. He goes, yeah. So it's administrative in nature. Well, yeah. So what would happen if you had your highly qualified technician as your lead and two 1099s as your assist to do that heavy lifting? putting the pieces in place, doing the administration. He goes, that's only going to save me maybe 10% on the job. Okay. If you can lower 10% of the cost of that job by half and went to your CFO and said, Hey, I just found a way to reduce the labor cost for this project by 5%. They'd probably like that. And that's when you usually get that look of, okay, maybe you are onto something. So it's really understanding how to make it work in your organization. And what I tell people to do, quit thinking of all the ways it won't work. Find one or two ways it might work, try it, and see how it grows from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and and I like the I like what you said about you know it's not a one size fits all. It's not all or nothing. It's really a more individual use case. Um, so so looking at it in that context is a is a good point. And even within the same organization, there could be different flavors. You may have some markets where your technician utilization is low. So you would rarely use a 1099 because you have the bandwidth. Then we have those markets that are very high utilization that will use a lot more of it. So even within the same group, you might have different uh, usage levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think going back to some of the concerns of, of leveraging um 1099 employees, you know, one of the ones that get gets brought up that I, I think has merit to it is the the idea that it could have a negative impact on customer experience, right? So if you have someone that is, 
you know, less knowledgeable than your own employee base or less committed to the company um, mission than your own employee base or, you know, um, doesn't have the same level of, of people skills or soft skills or what have you, right? Um, you know, I, I think there are certainly ways to overcome that challenge, but it is, I think, a, a valid concern. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how companies can leverage some of today's technologies to help ensure that they're getting what they want from a contingent workforce. So particularly as it relates to a positive customer experience. That is a common concern and it's, it is a valid one. As I mentioned earlier, when you start down this path, there is a lot of work that has to go up front. And you don't always have the luxury of fully vetting and developing a robust labor cloud uh, or talent pool that you know the, the techs extremely well. But you do have to have a vetting process in place. Uh, I like to use a third-party tool that gives me access to different 1099s, gives me tools to manage and understand what they can do, track their performance. I can see their performance from other jobs, ratings that other companies have given them. So the first step is no different than screening somebody's resume. You go through here and you see their work history and, and you see that they have the right skill sets and experiences that you need. The second thing we do is we have them vetted by our field service management team. I do have regional managers. They interview these uh, technicians the same as they would interview somebody they were going to hire. And they, they make a hiring decision. I'm going to hire him for this job. And then we make sure that they're very clear and understand uh, what the expectations are. Now, the technology becomes really important here because when you're hiring an employee that's going to be working with you for you the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you do invest more time, more effort, and you understand that the ramp might be a little different. If you have a contractor that you're going to use once or twice or not very often throughout the year, you have to be able to get the same results very quickly. So from a technology standpoint, make sure you have real-time visibility into the work that's going on on site. You have to be very good at delivering quality runbooks and instructions, what has to go on with the site. You have to be very good at checking deliverables. And you have to have the ability for the, the technician on site to reach out to a lifeline or support. Now, we have implementation support. So a tech's on site, he runs into an issue, he calls in, they help him resolve the issue. For my employees, and well, at this point, some of our contractors and a lot of jobs for us, they use it very infrequently. But they also need to know that for the guys that are going out through their first few jobs, they're going to use it more often than not. Anytime it's possible, their first few jobs, I have them go alongside with one of my W-2s. That way we can caution them on that and make sure how things are going. Uh, but you have to be able to get that, the effective delivery for the MOPs, the SOWs, any pertinent documentation as seamless as possible. Because the flip side of the coin if you're not setting them up for success, they're not going to want to do more work for you. One of the key differences between the 1099 and the W-2, the 1099's next job depends on how well he does this job. And if you're making it hard for him to be difficult, he's going to go to the person who's making it easy to be successful. And I mean, you know, with one of the things we haven't talked about um, is that, you know, I, I know that a lot of service organizations right now are really struggling with talent, right? And so whether it's, you know, um, engaging and retaining really talented W-2 employees or 
whether it's, you know, ensuring that you can continue leveraging a 1099 employee that's doing a really good job, you know, you want to be conscious of, of being smart about not, um, you know, not mismanaging that labor on, on either end of the spectrum. Absolutely. You got to make sure that you're keeping all the employees uh, productive. Uh, they like to be challenged. You know, we're talking field technicians here. They, they, they thrive under pressure and they, they like the challenging tasks and, and they like you to push them. So you have to keep them engaged. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like what you said about, um, defining clear expectations. You know, I think that, um, I think overall employees are, are more engaged and more satisfied when they have a, a clear view of what it is you want from them so that they can see, you know, how they're, how they're hitting the mark or not. You know, I think that a lot of, um, employee frustration comes from, you know, a lack of clarity around what the expectations are. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's extra important for a 1099 that you don't, you know, have the same level of, of, um, history with necessarily. Absolutely. Good. Okay. So, so if you, let's say there's someone listening that you've convinced <laughs> to look more into, uh, into a hybrid labor model, um, what would you say to them in terms of, you know, based on your experience, what's the best advice you can give for a company that, that is considering leveraging a hybrid labor model, but hasn't historically or, or thus far? The first thing I would recommend you do is sit down and find out what is the problem you're trying to solve. If you're going to explore doing hybrid labor models because you hear it's the cool thing to do and everybody else is doing it so you don't want to be left behind, that's probably not a good reason to get into it. But every organization has something they're struggling with, whether it's a continuous pressure to lower your cost, if it's the, the ability to stand up fast and ramp up for projects more quickly without bringing in a lot of overhead. Figure out the problem you're trying to solve. Talk to your team. Find out what problems they have. Let them help you provide insight into what you can fix. And then you can find a way to deploy this. Let, go through those reasons where they say you can't do it and why it won't work. And like I said earlier, find one thing that will work for you and, and start down that path. Don't underestimate the amount of heavy lifting you have to do up front. You know, the documentation you give to your person who's been here for 10 years and the documentation for the person who's doing it for the first time has to be done very differently. So you might have to revamp some of your support and find a good partner. Uh, I, I've seen people that say, well, I'm going to build my own tool. I'm going to create this database. I know a couple of guys here and a couple of guys there. And there are some companies that before this became in fashion, have been compiling databases and they do have the ability to do that in-house. But there's several companies out there that provide an online portal that will help you with identifying, managing, getting real-time reporting, making payments. Uh, find one and work with them. Don't try to go it on your own. Good, good. Don't reinvent the wheel. Right. <clears throat> don't be afraid to modify the spokes a little bit, but don't start from scratch. Yep, good. Well, that's great, Charles. I really appreciate you um, you joining with us today and, and talking about this topic. I think it's it's certainly um, you know with the 
the labor challenges that do exist, it's certainly a, a model that I think people need to be considering and factoring into to their decisions. And I, I love the, um, you know, what you had to say about, you know, really involving your frontline workforce and making this a collaborative effort. Um, I, I think that's a really good point. So thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate it and, and hope to have you back sometime soon. Oh, it was a pleasure, and I uh, hope everybody that tries this has great success at it. Uh, if you don't at first, keep trying. You'll eventually figure it out. And look Charles up on LinkedIn and, and let him know. <laughs> I can talk about this all day long, by all means. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Thank you, Charles. Thanks, everybody. I love Charles's take on uh, mastering a hybrid workforce today. I think what he was saying uh, with any change um, of including the workforce in the decision-making process and in all of the communication and planning makes such a huge difference. It's a very good point. Uh, And if you would like to read more on contingent workers and how to manage that within your organization, you can find written content on that subject at futureoffieldservice.com. You can also check us out on Twitter, and you can also find the Future of Field Service on LinkedIn. If you have any thoughts or suggestions on this topic or another, uh, you can feel free to reach out to me through email at sarah at futureoffieldservice.com. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS and WorkWave. To learn more about how IFS and WorkWave service management software can work for you, please visit www.ifsworld.com. Thanks for listening.